0: It's been more than a decade since the 2008 recession first hit, yet for many of our communities the impacts are still felt today. One of those tremendous impacts is in, of course, neighborhood housing. In one Kansas City, Missouri neighborhood, for instance, so many families were foreclosed upon during the recession that the area has flipped from being 65% owner-occupied homes to well below 50% owner-occupied. Absentee landlords swept in to grab up the cheap properties, leaving neglect, vacancy, and crumbling buildings in their wake. But that's not the whole story of this place. The Marlboro Community Land Trust in Kansas City has been stepping up to connect more neighbors, especially low-income neighbors, with opportunities for home ownership and to ensure that those opportunities continue in perpetuity for future families. Community land trusts are a model for stabilizing neighborhoods while at the same time allowing low- and middle-income people the chance to build household wealth. This conversation features Rebecca McQuillan, Executive Director of the Marlboro Community Land Trust, and Roger Kuby, President of the Land Trust Board. You'll hear them talk about how they got started just a few years ago, including the creative ways that they've pursued funding and built positive partnerships to accomplish their goals. You'll also hear a really thorough description of how a land trust works and why it's been a successful approach in many neighborhoods like theirs. Rebecca and Roger also get candid about the challenges of this work, especially in the currently hotly competitive housing market. And they tell some moving stories of how the chance to pursue that American dream of homeownership has changed lives in their neighborhood. So here's my conversation with these two wonderful leaders of the Marlboro Community Land Trust. Rebecca McQuillan and Roger Kuby, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It's great to have you both here.
1: Good to be here.
0: Thank you for having us. So let's start with hearing a little bit about each of you. Rebecca, could you start and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be running the Marlboro Community Land Trust?
2: Sure. By training, I am an attorney um, working in the public interest. So I became familiar with Marlboro, the neighborhood, working as an attorney at Legal Aid of Western Missouri, um, representing the neighborhood association and and residents of the neighborhood in various types of cases, like some tenants' rights issues, like estate planning stuff, and also uh, working with abandoned houses. And so that's how... I started working with the Marlboro Community Coalition. There was one type of case in particular that the Marlboro Community Coalition really started like pioneering the use of in Kansas City, which is something called the Abandoned Housing Act. And it's it's an act that's in, um, it's in a few different states. I don't really know of other uh, people who use it as much as in, as in Kansas City, Missouri, but it allows for a home that has been Vacant is a nuisance and has tax has tax uh, delinquency. There is a statute that allows standing for a nonprofit, in this case, the Marlboro Community Coalition to file a lawsuit against the owner and the owner can fix the property or if the owner does not ultimately comply with the requirements of the statute, then the neighborhood association can get a court administrator's deed to the property. And I represented Marlboro in quite a few of those. And what happened was a lot during the recession. You know, investors from literally all over the world were buying foreclosed mortgages up by the hundreds and thousands, and, and bought quite a few in Marlboro for as little as fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars. And so they were just sitting vacant. And so a lot of those, a lot of those cases were default judgments. Or the investor didn't even respond. It was, you know, two thousand dollars investment, or you know, ten thousand dollars to fight it. Um, two thousand dollars just in delinquent taxes. So, it is a great system for divesting absentee owners of titles, and it's a really powerful tool. Very powerful. And the Marlboro Community Coalition started really wanting to use that tool. I think in a more in, in a more meaningful way um, And realizing that the opportunity to gain title to properties um, could be a really great way to better serve the community, because until that time, at Marlborough Community Coalition had been um, partnering with 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 rehabbers, with people who were renovating the house, and then and then those people were ultimately getting the title, and MCC lost lost a lot of control and. And lost the ability, really, uh, the heart of the issue was MCC lost the ability to make sure that that house served the community. And it was served as, as a wealth building asset for, for the rehabber. And no one, I think, vilifies them for that. Everybody has to feed their family and stuff. But MCC started to say, like, how can we, how can we use these properties for the highest and greatest good of the community? And that is keeping people in their houses, keeping uh, the community safe, keeping these houses l- looking nice and occupied and well-maintained and the, the, having a better impact on the schools for the people who go, who go to the schools because people can stay in their house. They can afford it. And so started looking at, um, I think, one of the founding board members, Diane Hirschberger, she attended a conference where somebody talked about a community land trust. And so Diane was like, we need to make a community land trust. And so from that, the neighborhood applied for our funding to do a feasibility study for a community land trust. And then the neighborhood hired an organization that I at that time was working with that I had founded to be the consultants to really research the feasibility of the community land trust, come up with a plan for long-term sustainability um, to come up with funding to educate bankers, realtors, home buyers, community residents on a community land trust how it operates, how it can um, serve the community and and we determined it is feasible. this is totally something that that we can do. And so then MCC decided to instead of putting this the community land trust under its wing to s- incorporate a separate, sister organization, the Marlboro Community Land Trust. And then I was kind of appointed the first executive director of the Marlboro Community Land Trust because I had fulfilled all of the consulting work um, and background research on the CLT, how it could operate in Marlboro. And so then that's how I got involved and became, became running the Community Land Trust.
0: Thanks so much, Rebecca. Yeah, I appreciate that that background. Roger, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you've been involved in this work too?
1: Right. So I was a clergy person for 35 years and I retired um, and ran an organic vegetable farm for a number of years full time. And then I retired from that and I'm in the building now that my wife and I uh, have renovated in the kind of historical downtown area of this neighborhood. So that's my like third career. And, <laughs> and and then I'm also the president of the Marlborough Community Land Trust. And I got interested in this because my wife and I moved here 25 going on 26 years ago. And, and my wife is Diane Hirschberger, who uh, Becca mentioned before. And we fell in love with this place, with the people, with the just the, the ambiance of a neighborhood that was had once been kind of a glorious place to live, and over the years had become really disenfranchised and disinvested. And we saw, especially following the 2008 recession, we saw our neighbors losing our losing their houses left and right. Uh, and most of them happened to be people of color, which just exacerbated the kind of racial inequity that our city, and we'll get into that a little bit more, But but our city and our neighborhood uh, face here. So, kind of, Becca and I from the start um, were involved prior to the formation of, of the Community Land Trust in working on an urban renewal area for part of our neighborhood. And as we, we were, it was kind of a unique thing. We worked with a, a class at the University of Kansas City, Missouri Law School in their entrepreneurial real estate law class and um, began to see deeper into uh, the kind of situation here on the ground that we we had known, I guess we'd kind of known it in our hearts, but we really began to see all the statistical kinds of things that that had happened. You know, Becca started as a half-time executive director and worked like three times as much as she was getting paid for. Um, and has really grown the organization to the point now where we have uh, adequate funding to, to really deal with the kinds of issues here that are, that are entrenched and need to be faced in ways that can benefit the people who live in our neighborhood. I mean, I think we came into this really concerned about the kind of the social welfare of the people who live here, knowing that housing is one of those determinants of well-being, that's so important. Um, and was you know it, we saw it. <laughs> I mean, this neighborhood switched from in in two thousand before the Great Recession. It was you know like sixty-five percent home ownership, thirty-five percent rental, and it 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 totally reversed in a period of about three years. So that now we're probably looking at. 65 to 70% rentals and the rest being owned by people, you know, who reside in homes that they own. So um, we wanted to find a a methodology that we could help people do that. And the community land trust model allowed us also to help those people to generate wealth, uh, which is a very important thing. And we've got some other things that we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, about how we're working on that as well.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much. Could maybe either of you, maybe Rebecca, could you explain how a community land trust works for, for people listening that, um, I think a lot of us have heard of a community land trust, but maybe don't know exactly how it functions.
2: Sure, so when I explain to people, the, the community land trust model, Oftentimes people, and particularly because I work in the legal field, think of like a trust, like a trust document as an estate planning um, tool, and many houses are owned by trusts. It's not that kind of trust. I mean, it's, it is the word trust as in held for the benefit of the community, but there's no formal like trust document. It's just more of a, a more generic use of the word, not the specific word, like a, like a, a trust in estates. So it's similar to like, think of people are oftentimes familiar with conservation trusts, um, where the land can only be used for conservation purposes. And so a community land trust is an entity that owns, that acquires land and that land will be used for whatever is the, um, the ideals of the, of the, community that incorporated it. So in ours we are looking at creating affordable housing and and stabilizing the community through housing. So the community land trust will buys a lot and say it redevelops the house that's on the lot. It sells the house to a qualifying buyer which we are are we have a Depending on who what the who the funder is for the for the work, if it's like HUD, then it's a maximum of eighty percent of the area median income. If it's private funding, we have more wiggle room. But our preference, regardless of the funding type, is somebody below eighty percent of the area median income. So we sell just the house, not the land. The community land trust retains ownership of the land to make make sure that that land continues to serve the benefits, to serve the community. So the way that this is done is by a ground lease between the homeowner and the community land trust, the homeowner and the landowner, there's a ground lease. And that ground lease really dictates who can buy that house. So right now, like I said, we have a preference for someone who is below 80% of the area median income. And in some cases, a, an absolute requirement. Like if it's HUD funding, there is no, there's no preference about it. I mean, it has to be a max of 80% AMI. And then also um, a, a resale formula so that that house, when it is resold, so we have buyer one, we can be sure they are 80, maximum 80% AMI. We can be sure that our sales price is priced affordably. But what happens with buyer two and buyer three and buyer four and buyer five? And that was kind of the issue that MCC was seeing when it was doing these abandoned housing acts and contracting with a a rehabber to do a certain amount of work. But what happened once they owned it and then they sold it? What happened in that second buyer and third buyer and fourth buyer? So this ground lease between the low income homeowner and the community land trust as a landowner, the ground lease dictates that, okay, when this person is ready to, to sell the house and the average, there's been a, a pretty uh, large longitudinal study over about 30 years of community land trust. The, the average time is about six years that people live there. So we'll say, for my example, they live there for six years. They're ready to go. Um, the, the ground lease says, okay, you got this house. Um, we'll say it's a $200,000 house. You bought it for $150,000. So there's a $50,000 subsidy there. When you sell the house, if the market value is 225 you don't sell the house at 225 because then that whole $75,000, $50,000 of which is a subsidy, goes straight to a person's pocket. And then the house is now two twenty-five, dollars and it can't serve somebody who's low income. So when you sell the house, there is a formula that um, ensures that the house is sold both below market and in a way that gives the homeowner some equity, they, they, they receive some of the equity. So the community land trust retaining ownership of the land allows it to enforce the ground lease requirements, which is really the key magic of the land trust. So we make sure that that house is, only, is always sold to a low income person and that every time it's affordable. So um, it, we can make sure that it's always sold below market value and that it's always accessible to fifth generation of homeowner on, it is still, that subsidy is still serving its same purpose that it served for the first homeowner, which just can't happen when it's, when it's solely a market-rate house. I mean, that, that ability to have that control goes away, just like in a conservation trust, right? Like if some of our lands weren't held in conservation, they'd be huge real estate developments. And we hold it for the benefit of the wildlife and, and nature on there same way a community land trust works like this house this this plot of land is always going to be used to further affordable housing and to further wealth generation for low-income homeowners
0: thanks for that explanation i feel like i've read um many explanations of community land trust but i've not heard it laid out so clearly so i appreciate that Roger, you mentioned earlier how important it is in this program to be building wealth and allowing low income families to like start building that equity. Um, can you talk more about that and um, how that's uh, part of this work?
1: Well, yeah. So in the studies that Becca mentioned, on average, homeowners are in a community land trust model are taking about fourteen dollars to $15,000 if they've lived in the house like for six years. Um, of equity that then um, they can use to purchase another home that they'd like to live in. Um, And often they, you know, often those people are staying in the same neighborhoods. We're working really hard to try to do quality development so that people aren't displaced from our neighborhood because over and over again, we see what happens is as land prices and housing prices go up, the people who've lived here um, are forced out and they have to go someplace else. And, and usually, the places they go, the housing stock is in worse shape than the house that they left. We want to encourage that kind of wealth building. The second thing about that is that the, that the studies have indicated that the foreclosure rates on community land trust homes are very low because around the real estate transaction, we build in a community support system. So we're, we, we offer the kind of training beforehand that first time homeowners have to have in order to understand what they do when something breaks and they're not calling a landlord, but they have to call a plumber themselves. Um, we're building around that, the kind of knowledge base that they need to, to be able to understand how they make payments. Uh, on a mortgage and the kind of financial responsibility that, that that entails for them, and so all of that is working together to build a sense of confidence in the in the people who who sometimes have been, you know, who who have who have felt all their life that they could never pursue the American dream of owning their own home, and then all of a sudden, here's an opportunity for them to to feel like. First class citizens instead of second class citizens. Um, and that's a, you know, that's such an important part of what we do. So the, the the services that we offer in terms of the kind of community development and the kind of uh, support. Um, we've just because we were able to acquire the funding, we just were able to hire a person who's really going to concentrate on that part of, of our projects going forward.
0: Speaking of funding, Rebecca I wanted to ask: How does the funding for this actually work? Number one, for you guys to purchase the land, and then for uh, residents, lower-income residents to purchase the homes. Where where do those funding streams come from?
2: Sure. So we are having to pivot a little bit because um, during the initial planning of the community land trust and my, you know, consultant role, um, there was a a a focus on acquiring properties through the abandoned housing act Um, because at that point, even though it was, I think 2018 and 2019, the market was not what it is right now. And so there was still an opportunity to acquire those. So those are provided, um, those properties are acquired with donated services from the Stinson law firm. So they are the pro bono counsel to the Marlboro community coalition. And, um, and so then that, that is how those are acquired, is with a lawsuit. And then we were looking at foreclosures and being part of the National Community Stabilization Trust program, which gives nonprofits um, an opportunity, a window of opportunity, to buy a foreclosed Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac house um, prior to it going to an investor. Because uh, policymakers did see the, the problems that came out of the recession where investors built their wealth, right? They, they gained a lot more wealth, but homeowners and uh, lost their wealth. So their, the National Community Stabilization Trust was created to allow um, owner occupants and nonprofits that um, create housing for owner occupants to have a first look to be able to buy those first. But as we have found since, you know, tw- uh, start of 2020 until now, which we just incorporated in 2019, June of June 21st, 2019, I think was our incorporation date. So first of all, the eviction of the foreclosure moratorium. I think it's I think it's a good thing. It's it's great. It's it 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 made the. Um, what we were looking at as a stream of houses to keep people in their houses, you know, that, that went away. So that's, I'm not complaining about it. That's just as a fact is those houses were not an option to acquire. And then the market um, houses that had been abandoned for 15 years. Now people are fighting over because the market turned so quickly. So the ability to acquire abandoned houses, um, basically just kind of disappeared overnight and, and, and you wouldn't believe some of the um, people can t- people who don't even have an ownership interest are contesting houses um, that they that they want to buy um, from a you know long deceased person. Like they're wanting to do the whole probate for the deceased person to get the house from an heir and and they're contesting the abandoned housing at cases. So those cases have really dried up. So we have had to switch our focus on on funding because we were looking at being able to acquire those for, you know, free to very low cost. So we have instead started focusing on um, we we ha- we have a, we did acquire one NCST property um, in early 2020 before you know the, the full impacts of COVID were being felt, um, and so that one we rehabilitated with a uh, a line of credit from a private bank, Blue Ridge Bank. Um, they are have been amazing and wonderful at, you know, just really believed in us and believed in our mission and agreed to lend to us. And we really didn't have much, you know, much to, to show other than good faith and good intentions. Um, so they have been a, a wonderful partner. Um, and then we started looking at acquiring land bank lots, vacant land bank lots, and then then getting funding from the city, HUD funding, CDBG funds, home funds to um, build new houses and to have a a subsidy grant amount. And then the remainder is from private funding, uh, which comes from capital federal, and those, we haven't done yet. We have the all the funding, of, you know, we have the lots, we have the um, funding appropriated. It's just really going through a lot of the red tape with all of the federal funding. Um, and so, our and our operational dollars have been foundational dollars. And we look very forward to, and our goal is to be in a place where we can be a bit more self-sufficient and be able to act nimbly to acquire properties and to compete for the acquisition of properties. Um, we're just not there right now. We're trying to build that up.
1: And I yeah. might add, if, if I can add to that, we live in an, uh, in an area that um, is facing the prospect of some real gentrification. Um, in, in Kansas City, there's a historic street called Truce Avenue, which has been the dividing line between the white community and the black community since uh, the 1920s, actually, probably maybe even longer than that, but for sure, since the 1920s. And east of Troost, where we live, has been the area that's been redlined, um, where where African-American folks particularly have have faced discrimination in the lending processes, in the ability to get insurance, in the way that their houses are appraised once they, they own them. Um, so, so now, um, with the kind of housing shortage that there is here in the city, as well as nationwide, of course, um, the, the properties that are here in our particular neighborhood, um, are becoming very hot items. So a house that five years ago would have sold for $50,000 is now selling in the range of 200 to sometimes $300,000. Um, and and so that kind of that kind of market dynamic has impacted the way that, as Becca said, is, you know, is really impacting the way that we acquire properties. Um, and it and it and it raises all kinds of other social issues about uh, about equity, which, you know, we're always there, but they've come to the fore in the last two or three years uh, because of some of the horrific things that have happened nationally and raised everybody's awareness about the fact that racism is still alive in America. I mean, the other piece that we might add is, you know, that, that, that um, we're strong advocates of the Incremental Development Alliance and have, have participated in that for a number of years. Um, and we're thrilled, we're actually thrilled to be included in the group of people who were invited to hear Chuck Marone Um, When he was invited to Kansas City to talk about strong towns and the impact of of the way that that financial investments um, in building properties and building uh, commercial, but also residential real estate impacts the tax bases. Um, So so that's kind of philosophically, those things are behind um, kind of our approach to to the community land trust model as well.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. I wanted to ask how you engage with residents um, in the neighborhood as part of this process. Um, Of course, like folks are coming into, you know, an individual family is coming in to buy a home, but um, is there a role that the neighborhood has played in um, deciding like what's going to happen with these properties and kind of what's the approach to engaging with, with neighbors in the community?
2: Well, I think, To answer one of your questions, like, yes, I mean, the neighborhood has a lot of say on what happens with the properties. So the properties that we're working on now, right now, like the infill builds um, and the renovations that we're working on, those are all initiated, the location initiated by the neighborhood association. So the, the infill builds are, um, we've been a, a Applying, reapplying over and over again on the same like set of 10 to 12 properties for the past few years for funding for infill build. So we get funding allocated, and then we just reapply with the same properties um, that are that are land bank properties. And those were identified by the neighborhood association, I want to say back in like back in 2018 or 2019. Um, because they are in they are in and around really great neighborhood assets. Um, we've had Uh, The the Marlboro neighborhood has been um, the benefactor, I guess, of some wonderful infrastructure improvements. And so the neighborhood really wants to stabilize housing in and around those improvements to make sure they are being used and to make sure that people of of all different incomes can have access to really, really nice top-notch parks and infrastructure. So those builds and the properties, um, were identified by the neighborhood. And then the renovations we have ongoing were also, um, those were part of the Abandoned Housing Act. It takes a long time. So the ones I'm <laughs> working on now were identified years ago, and it just takes a while to go through the pipeline. You know, for me, being the consultant and coming up with the plan for the neighborhood about how a CLT could operate, a lot of what I do is, is really trying to like follow that plan that was created. Um, But we definitely see a way, a a need right now as we grow and looking into the future to make sure that we are really actively engaged with the community. Um, So that is why, one of the reasons we have our new hire is to have somebody who can just be focused um, a lot on community outreach and engagement. But we haven't talked about the Marlboro school yet, but like we set up, but like I was there at a table and some other board members at a table every Saturday afternoon for, I think like, ha, like August, the month of August or the month of September, trying to just like hand out information, talk to, talk to residents. So we do direct mailers to residents. We do um, Facebook postings. And yeah, we met, we got, we like met, we sat there with a big sign, like come talk to us, give us your feedback. Um and we hope to, as we you know, work on our strategic plan, maybe starting to step outside of that initial strategic plan created as a consultant into the future to be able to have this new person that Roger mentioned to really help lead those community meetings and engagement and help us to make sure that our future steps are guided by the neighborhood as well.
1: Yeah, and prior, prior to COVID, we had a number of gatherings in the community where people could come and learn about how a community land trust works and how they could benefit from it, um, and part of I mean part of what happens like in our neighborhood is because we have so many renters, they kind of move in and out pretty quickly, um, and you know so so communicating building a strong base to communicate with is is one of the major challenges that the neighborhood coalition has, and you know by it kind of leaks out on uh, on MCLT as well that that we think we have a good solid list of people that we can communicate with and then we find out that many of them have moved or changed their email address or or whatever. So, so that's a continual kind of process that we're going through. But, you know, when we had the initial meetings about this, we had, I mean, there was great excitement in the neighborhood about the possibilities that were here.
2: That's a really good point. Yeah, we had, we had, all throughout 2019. I mean, we had at least, I mean, I would say like- I'm going to say six. Yeah, like twice a quarter, exactly. Like once or twice a quarter. And then we, and then, in yeah, we had them all scheduled for 2020 and then uh, they've changed. And so we've gone to the more like the direct mail with virtual follow-up route. And we're just trying to, yeah, we're trying to figure it out. That's not the most effective. So we're so happy we have some funding to try to, to hire somebody who can work, who can really work in that outreach space and engagement space. So that's, we're trying to figure that piece out.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. It seems like you guys are very dedicated to hitting people on a number of uh, different channels. Uh, I know it's, it depends on the person, how they're you know gonna communicate and listen best. I wanted to ask both of you, what results are you most proud of in this work so far? I know it's only been a formal organization for a few years, but what have you all accomplished that you're very proud of and excited about? Um, Roger, maybe we can start with you.
1: Okay. Well, I think that the thrill that we all felt when, and I still feel it, when our first house was sold to a 74-year-old Vietnam veteran disabled guy and his family who never believed that they would ever own a house. And he was able to purchase this house with the dream that his family will be able to continue to live in it and the the rights to it are transferable that that his family will be able to live in that house. Forever. Um, and it was a he you know his family is a multi-generational family where the grandkids live with the grandparents and and, um, his children were able to stay in the same school district their circle of friends and in fact the house that they that we were able to sell them was right across the street from a house they'd been renting for 11 years so their their circle of social support stayed right there with them, and the thrill that we had in being able to do that was just, I mean, it's beyond words. It just is, it's it's an amazing story. What's even more amazing about that is that that house had previously belonged to one of the founding members of the Marlboro Community Coalition, who unfortunately had died of a very uh, fast acting cancer, and her husband was not able to take care of it. It fell into disrepair, became a drug house um, and um, sat empty for years um, and was in the ver- you know, on the verge of like being totally destroyed when we were able to acquire it and-, and turn it into a beautiful asset for our community and for the family that bought it. That was, I mean, the, the thrill of that will last me forever.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that story. Rebecca, what are you most
2: proud of with this work so far?
1: I probably stole her shirt.
2: <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's maybe this is just because like stuff, what I like, you know, what we're going through as an organization and challenges we're facing, but like, I am really proud of us being able to face challenges and like have some failures and still keep going, rebound, find a different way out, get creative about it. And I, I just think it's because we're so committed to this that um, there is no just walking away. I mean, we, I feel like, I feel like, you know, we hit wall after wall after wall and it's like regrouping and keeping going. And I'm just really proud. I mean, our, our board of directors is, is so supportive um, they're amazing. They commit so much time. Roger as a president, I mean, he is like, I mean, he's like truly become like one of my very best friends, not just like in this space, but like in my life, I mean, just like the, the support. And so I, I'm not like proud of our failures because it's not fun to fail, but I am really proud that we've we've stuck together and we've like get to the next thing and get to the next thing. And, and it's been like, it's been really hard there. I mean, there have been some really very challenging times we've experienced. And I just think that's like, we can care, everybody cares so much that we are we just, just keep going through it. So I'm, I am grateful for those.
1: And and in a way, what we're doing is trying to model resiliency for our community. Um, and, you know, um, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times Beck and I have been on a telephone call when we're both in tears because <laughs> we had this grand plan and it didn't work. <laughs> right. But we're learning from our failures um, and we're learning. We're, I mean, there's a lot of politics in housing and we're learning how to negotiate all the political and bureaucratic kinds of blocks that are there. And how to find the allies that we really need in order to make this work. I, that's I'm, uh, and Becca's done. I mean, De- Becca's done the yeoman's work on that. She's 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 above and beyond the call of duty on a lot of those things. So I'm just a retired guy who has a lot of time, so I can do a lot of things. But but seems she's, like you guys
0: are a great team. To close us out here, I want to ask, what advice would you give to someone who's listening? that might be curious about starting a land trust in their town. I know it's, it's obviously a huge endeavor, but what would you suggest for someone that that is interested in this and might want to try to get started? Um, Maybe Rebecca, we could start with you.
2: The community land trust model as it is practiced in the United States today was born out of the civil rights movement um, by a community land trust that still exists called new communities. And so I think that if you're, if, people are interested, do, do the work, do the research, contact the community land trusts that have been carrying this, this burden and have had this focus on affordable housing for decades before it became like a sexy political topic. Like, so, so do that work, talk to the different people and different groups who are doing it um, and learn from them. And then also start, start with your local partners, you know, work with, work with the neighborhood, um, where you're, where you're interested, or if you are a neighborhood, talk with, talk with other neighborhoods, like really build up that, that base of partners, bankers, real estate agents, um, people who work with contractors. Yes, absolutely. Like really build up that network of assistance. Um, and, and don't, yeah, you don't need to, it's been created, it's been tested. It's a proven method, you know? So, so, make it easy on yourself and just, you know, humbly ask for assistance from the people who have gone before you um, and partner with the people who can provide what you can and give back to them what you can, you know? So I think that's look, looking to what's already happening and trying to find a way to fit in there because there is often, there are often finite funding dollars and finite um, foundation dollars. And so if there's a way to work together so that, everybody can win. I mean, that's my that's my first piece of advice. Like, don't just start like do talk to people who are already successful in it. Talk to people who are already active in that space in your city or community and see how how you can work together. Thank you. Um,
0: Roger, what advice would you give to someone that's curious about uh, starting a community land trust?
1: Find the money, follow the money. Um, there are good hearted, socially conscious people all around us who want to do good things and don't know how to do it. Um, And this is a way for them to get involved in in saving communities, literally changing the the trajectory of whole neighborhoods in urban America, uh, of, of finding ways that that people can. Can have their dignity improved and can follow the American dream and can feel the kind of confidence and pride of home ownership, um, but, but it takes money. What we've learned is to be real realistic about the money. Um, and that in fact, for us, the uh, a lot of what we thought was going to be kind of publicly funded, we're now looking at, at ways of privately funding things because it's so much quicker. Um, some of the, the HUD Uh, CBDG grants that we worked on have taken from the time that they were first announced until they've taken a year and a half or longer. And we still don't have a signed contract. Um, And that, you know, you lose your momentum, you lose, we've lost properties because of that. Um, So make sure that, that in the beginning, you have a sense that this is going to be a long process, it's going to be expensive, and you have partners that are going to be there to, to work with you. The way that we found Blue Ridge Bank and Capital Federal Banks, um, I mean, they've, they've really made this possible for us.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you both, um, Rebecca McQuillan and Roger Kuby, for, for being on the show and sharing your stories and insight with us today. Really appreciate the chance to talk with you.
1: Thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Strong Towns.
0: Take care. Bye, Rachel. Bye-bye. As you can probably tell, I really enjoyed that conversation with Rebecca and Roger and was particularly floored to hear how Strong Towns has has influenced them and um, how they're just so invested in their work. Super inspiring. I hope you were inspired as well. On that note, if you want to support people like Rebecca and Roger who are out there doing that work to make their community stronger, connect people to housing opportunities, make their neighborhoods better places to be, become a Strong Towns member. This work that we're doing inspires others and helps them in their own neighborhoods all over the country. Head to strongtowns.org membership to join today. And thank you so much if you're already a member. Your support is making such a difference. This is my final reminder to you all if you're listening to this podcast shortly after it comes out. February 20th, 2022 is the deadline to apply for the Strongest Town contest. really highly encourage you to nominate your community. The prize is a visit from Chuck Marone, who's going to do a talk in your community, and of course, eternal glory and honor. Um, In the past, we've even done like a special week on our site profiling the good things that are happening in the winning town. So is a huge opportunity really encourage you to nominate your town the nomination form probably takes like half an hour to fill out and also it's great to bring in some fellow neighbors and friends in your community to help you be part of this contest together and fill out that nomination form together so those are due february 20th at 11 p.m central get your application in my last note here is that you, you might have noticed we have sort of a recurring theme of Kansas City awesome people on this show. And that is mostly thanks to Abby Kinney, who I've mentioned before. She hosts our Upzone podcast at Strong Towns. And I just want to give a special thank you to her for connecting me with Rebecca and Roger. She connected me with Greg Lombardi, who we heard from a few episodes back, also doing good housing work in his city. So, yeah, make sure to check out UpZoned if you want to hear more from Abby. She's awesome. And thanks, Abby, for all these great tips. All right, everybody, have a good week. We'll see you back for the next episode.